We're going to start this morning with our scene of activity. We do that often. Here we are, going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Gospel of Mark. And so if you haven't been with us, you might, have, uh, you might be unaware of some of the things that have been happening. So we're going to kind of begin setting the scene, which will include just a little bit of recap. The last few weeks, we've been looking at one of the most glorious events to happen in the New Testament, in the ministry of Jesus, commonly referred to, traditionally referred to as the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus takes along with him Peter, James, and John. They go up onto Mount Hermon. They're there. Jesus is transfigured in front of them. He's joined with Elijah and Moses, and they begin to discuss the things that are on the horizon, the things that will happen to Jesus once he reaches Jerusalem. Because note, from Mount Hermon, Jesus will descend, reach the valley, make his way back to Galilee, make his way down the Jordan River Valley, up through the Judean wilderness to Jerusalem, where he'll be declared to be king, but he'll be tried illegally and ultimately crucified. So Jesus is beginning a march, so to speak, to the cross from this moment. And so he's transfigured. Peter opens mouth, inserts foot, swallows foot to about the kneecap, says just a really stupid thing. It's so good for us to be. He interrupts a conversation that Jesus is having with Moses and Elijah. Peter just has to get his two cents in. And we're told that they were afraid. Now, if they couldn't get any more afraid, we're told that a cloud descended and surrounded, overshadowed them. And from the midst of this cloud, God spoke. And he said two things. From the cloud, God said, he affirmed, who Jesus really was. He refers to him as, this is my beloved son. What Peter was suggesting that they build three tabernacles of worship, three tabernacles of meaning. What was, what was wrong in the suggestion was that Peter was taking Jesus and placing him on the same plane as Moses and Elijah. How dare he? And so God affirms who Jesus is. This is my son. But then God commands that they hear him. Hush and hear. You know, we would often be well if we would also take the same advice to sometimes hush and hear. Now, the presence of God in the cloud, Moses, Elijah, they immediately disappear, leaving behind Jesus, no longer transfixed with his disciples alone on Mount Hermon. Jesus, we're told, warns them that they should keep what they had seen to themselves till the Son of Man had risen from the dead before they begin this journey down the mountain back to the other disciples. Now, as they continue their descent, we're told, and we're in verse 11, that they asked Jesus, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? <laughs> now, if you're tracking through this scene and Jesus has been transfigured and Moses and Elijah have appeared and God has descended in a cloud, and spoke in an audible voice from the cloud, and you're now walking back down the mountain, I can think of probably a good thousand other questions that I would ask other than the one that they present. I mean, this question, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Initially, it seems kind of bizarre. It kind of appears to be in, like kind of out of left field. Like of all of the things that they could ask Jesus at this moment with their curiosity piqued by what they had seen, they choose to ask about the scribes and about Elijah. Now why? You see, though initially we might conclude that this is just the disciples being the disciples, missing the point, overlooking the obvious, 
stating the stupidity. Their question is actually quite relevant. And so our question, our first question is how? How is this question relevant to the things that, has, that have been going on? Now, if you go back to Mark chapter 8, verse 29, Peter declared that Jesus was the Messiah. It was a glorious declaration. Who do men say that I am? Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And from that moment, Jesus continues over the last few verses, teaching them a radically different view of the nature of the Messiah and the nature of the Messiah's vision. This is what the entire last several verses, last chapter and a half, have kind of been about. Now, as the suffering servant presented by the prophet Elijah, Jesus said that the Messiah must suffer many things, that the Messiah would be rejected, would be killed, and after three days would rise again. Now, though this is a radical departure from what the disciples had been taught concerning the Messiah, any doubt that Jesus was really the Messiah, you would have to imagine has been removed by what they had seen. The transfiguration, I'm confident, had removed any doubt, any sliver of a hesitation in the minds of Peter, James, and John that Jesus was indeed who he said he was. The case for Christ, I think, for these men, following the transfiguration, the case for Christ was closed. Now, to understand the relevancy of this question, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? You have to understand, first, what the scribes taught concerning Elijah And to understand that, you have to kind of at least have a base understanding of what the scribes also taught concerning the Messiah. They say, why do the scribes say? And for these Jewish men, Jesus is teaching them something about the Messiah that is a radical departure from everything they had been taught since childhood. Everything that the scribes, the experts in the law and the prophets had told them concerning the Messiah, Jesus is building upon and adding to. And so there, as they're making their way down, they're trying to reconcile what Jesus is saying and what the scribes have been teaching, which makes this relevant. They had a question and they bring it to Jesus. The scribes. The scribes had an interesting view of the Messiah. Now, the scribes, they were not idiots, and they understood from a study of Scripture that the Old Testament seemed to present two competing descriptions of the Messiah. On one aspect, they agreed that the scribes and the prophets and Psalms seemed to point to or describe the Messiah as a suffering servant. They understood that. But they also saw that the Messiah was described as a triumphant king. And so the scribes were were grappling with how to handle these two descriptions of the Messiah that seemed to be in direct contradiction. How could the Messiah be a suffering servant, but also be a triumphant king? Now their remedy, their remedy was that the scriptures were describing two different messiahs. And this was what they taught. First, they concluded that there was a Messiah. They referred to this Messiah as Messiah ben David or Messiah son of David. That the Messiah would come as a conquering king and the pattern and the lineage of David. They would refer to this Messiah as being the son of David. 
a coming king. The second Messiah they referred to as Messiah ben Joseph or Messiah son of Joseph. Joseph, if you'll recall, was a great hero in Jewish culture. Joseph was a perfect picture of a suffering servant. Now they believed that the triumphant king, Messiah ben David, would come before Messiah ben Joseph. That there would be a political revival or a political revolution first that would then be followed by a spiritual revival or a spiritual awakening brought about by the second Messiah. They also referred to Messiah ben Joseph by another phrase. They referred to him as the prophet. Now, to understand the prophet, and we're not going to get into this in great detail. We're leaving it for one of our B-sides this week. But to understand, Deuteronomy, in two different places, Moses predicted that there was coming one after him, a prophet out of Israel, the prophet, that would be greater than him, that would bring about a spiritual awakening. Now, what's fascinating about the descriptions that Moses provides concerning this prophet is that to be greater than Moses, Moses was viewed by the Jews as being the greatest. Why? Because he had seen and talked and interacted with God face to face. Now, how do you get greater than that? Well, how do you get greater than that is you're God, which then makes a lot of sense because remember when John the Baptist came onto the scene, they sent scribes to check him out. And in John chapter one, we're told that the scribes come to John the Baptist and they're like, who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And John was like, no, I'm not. Well, then are you Elijah? And John said, no. And then they ask, interesting, well, are you the prophet? They don't say, are you one of the prophets or are you of the nature of the prophets? The, the phrase that they use indicates a reference, an Old Testament reference, the prophet, the ultimate prophet. Who are they asking if he was? Well, are you the first Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the second Messiah? Four chapters later in John chapter five, Jesus would then say, he would say, I don't stand and accuse you. Moses is standing in an accusation of you because if you had listened to him, you would have known me because Moses wrote about me. Now, we obviously know the law pointed to Jesus, but when did Moses write about Jesus? Well, I'm of the opinion that Moses wrote about Jesus when he talked about this coming prophet that would bring about a spiritual awakening within the people. So the scribes taught that there would be two messiahs. This is how they reconciled these two competing views. The triumphant king would come before the suffering servant and Elijah would prepare the way for Messiah the king. In Malachi chapter four, verses five and six, we get this prophecy. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming and great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, instead of two different messiahs fulfilling these competing descriptions, Jesus was teaching them what? Jesus was teaching them that he, as the Messiah, would fulfill both roles. They concluded that these competing descriptions meant that there were two Messiahs. Jesus is like, no, there's one, and that's me, but I will fulfill both, how? And two different comings. In Matthew 12, verses 23, Jesus allowed himself to be referred to as what? As the son of David, which was a direct reference to this Messiah, Ben David. More recently, Jesus has referred to himself as the suffering servant, as the Messiah Ben Joseph, by saying that he would have to suffer many things. He would fulfill both roles on two occasions. Now, the disciples are having a hard time wrapping their brains around the concept of Jesus coming twice 
to fulfill both roles. Why? Well, we already noted it last week that they're having a hard time understanding what Jesus really meant by what? By the resurrection of the dead. If you're having a hard time understanding the resurrection of the dead, then you're having a hard time wrapping your brains around Jesus coming twice because how does a normal person do that? So the essence, the essence of what the disciples question is, it flows like this. If there aren't two messiahs, but there's one, and we're gathering that by what you're teaching us, and since you're obviously the Messiah, you're going to fulfill both roles. We get you. But we don't see Elijah. Now, don't forget that, uh, that John the Baptist denied being Elijah. And there's a lot of controversy that, well, John came in the spirit of Elijah, and that's true. But John denied being Elijah, and many of these guys, as a matter of fact, Peter, James, and John, you can build the case, had been disciples of John the Baptist, so they were familiar with what John had said. So here's their question. If you're the Messiah, but we don't see Elijah, have the scribes been wrong in their assessment? Have they just, did they miss it? They're reconciling what Jesus has been teaching them with what the scribes had been teaching them. Well, Jesus answered in verse 12. And he told them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how it is written concerning the Son of Man, that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Note something interesting that Jesus does. Jesus affirms that the scribes are right, that Elijah is coming. He says that. He uses the phrase, it's a future tense. Elijah is coming. But then Jesus also says what? Elijah has also come. So he's saying, yeah, they're right. Elijah's coming, but they're also wrong because Elijah's already come. You see, in Elijah's future coming, Jesus makes it clear what his purpose will be. His purpose will be consistent with Malachi's prophecy that he will be to prepare the way to restore all things. Note that in Jesus's second coming, when he comes as a triumphant king, what will he also do? He will come to restore all things. And there's ample evidence to point that Elijah is one of the two witnesses that we find in Revelation chapter 13 coming to prepare the way for what? For the Messiah, for the Christ, for the king coming, Jesus' second coming. But Jesus also affirms Elijah's past coming. And what does he say concerning his past coming? He says, they did, who's they? The Jews, the people. He says, they did to him whatever they wished. And if you recall, Elijah was rejected by who? By the king. And he was rejected by the priest, the corrupt priesthood. So much of the scene and the culture surrounding Elijah and his first coming is very similar to what Jesus is currently facing, isn't it? And he says, Elijah came and they did whatever they wished. Shouldn't it then be logical that in the Messiah's first coming, if the Messiah is following a pattern with Elijah, shouldn't it seem logical that the Messiah's first coming would also produce what? Suffering and rejection at the hands of a rebellious people? So much of this begins to make sense when you understand what the scribes taught concerning the Messiah and what they taught concerning Elijah. And it also indicates why these men, 
after Jesus teaches so much about suffering and dying and resurrection, why they would still, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, view him as a triumphant king. Okay, they get it. You're both. But in order for there to be a spiritual revival, there has to be a physical liberation. So they were looking for Jesus to still be the king and then be the suffering servant. They're getting closer, but they're still not there. Jesus' answer, it affirms that Elijah and the Messiah would both come twice. In the first coming, the result would be suffering and the rejection of both. And the second coming, the result would be the restoration of all things by both. Well, verse 14, and when Jesus came to the disciples, the remaining disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. And immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and they run to him and they greeted Jesus. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them or with these other nine disciples? Well, one of the crowd answered, jumps to the forefront, says, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. And so I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. Now our scene, this nameless man brings his son who's demon possessed to be healed by Jesus because of the possession we're told that the boy was mute and he suffered great seizures. Now this description that he was mute, well, it's not an accident because tradition held that in order to perform an exorcism, the first step was to ask the demon's name. You were to ask the demon's name. And if you could get the demon's name because the name had power, you then had the upper hand because you knew the demon's name and you could now uh, utilize that power to try to cast the demon out. However, if you could never get the name because the possessed individual was mute, that indicated that the demon possessing the individual was so strong, so mighty, that it would be impossible to cast out. Now, when the episodes would begin, the demon, we're told, would seize the boy, would throw him down. This just describes just a violent, horrific scene. He would foam at the mouth. He would gnash his teeth. He would become rigid. Now, since Jesus is MIA, he's with Peter, James, and John up the mount. The remaining nine are at the base of the hill. This man brings his son, looking for Jesus, but brings his son to the disciples. It would appear from context that these nine men attempt to cast out the demon, but were unsuccessful. They could never get the name. And you could conclude that maybe the scribes had given it a whirl, and they too were unsuccessful. Either way, a great dispute, a debate, erupted between the disciples and these Jewish scribes. Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they return from their mountain hike only to find a disputing scribes, a distracted father, a demon-possessed boy, and defeated disciples. Now note, before this scene ends or before it transitions, Jesus will silence the scribes, comfort the father, heal the boy, and instruct the disciples 
lot on Jesus's plate when it comes to the scene. Now, before we move forward, there's a question, an interesting detail that you uncover as you begin to dig into the scriptures that demands at least a, a minor bit of explanation. We're told that the people were greatly amazed. So Jesus returns, they're greatly amazed. And this phrase, greatly amazed, it's an interesting phrase because it doesn't imply amazement or awe or wonder. It actually indicates in the Greek terror or fear, horror at Jesus's arrival. And so why do we find this reaction amongst the multitude upon Jesus coming back to the scene? Well, the first theory is that possibly, and you'll hear people say that Jesus, after the transfiguration, maybe had some kind of uh, radioactiveness to his skin, that he was still radiating kind of a glow to what had happened. And so he comes down and there's neon Jesus and the people are freaked out at neon glow in the dark Jesus. Like Jesus is the walking glow stick. Now that would freak me out and could explain why they were greatly afraid, but I don't think that that's likely for two reasons. First, the text indicates previously that Jesus, once God, Elijah, and Moses left, that Jesus returned to his normal state. The context doesn't imply that there was a residual glow after the transfiguration. So the text doesn't tell us this. Secondly, Moses provides us kind of the, the, the prototype, or at least the precedent for why people would conclude this about Jesus. That when Moses went up to receive the law, it was in the presence of God, a scene very similar to the one Jesus was in, that when Moses, were told, came down, that he had to put something over his face because he was radiating the Shekinah glow of God, and it was freaking everyone out. And so they conclude, well, maybe this is why they were greatly afraid. However... What happened to Moses has no comparison to what took place with Jesus. And let me explain. Moses had glory, the glory of the Father, radiated upon him. He had no control over it. It was radiating upon him. He couldn't turn it off or turn it off. It had to residually or slowly dissipate. Whereas Jesus, when he was transfigured, it wasn't a glory that was shown onto him. It was a glory that came out of him. And thus, because it came out of him, Jesus had full control whether or not it came out or didn't. It wasn't as though Jesus is out of control in regards to this glory. Like Jesus is walking around and all of a sudden like, boom, glory comes flying out and people are like, what in the world's happening? There's a difference of context. I don't think this first theory makes much sense. I'm kind of more in line with the second theory. Why were they afraid? Well, Jesus comes back to see what? To see a great argument in the presence of a great need. Kind of like, why were they afraid? They got caught. They got caught doing what they shouldn't have been doing. You know, it's sad that there was a debate over theology when there was a boy in misery. And I think this upset Jesus. And shame on the church when we allow our minor disagreements or debates concerning theology to distract us from those in our midst that are hurting and that need to experience the healing touch of Jesus. Well, Jesus, he answered this man who provides the explanation for what the debate was, 
was all about. And he said, oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him, speaking of the boy, to me. Now, this is an interesting statement by Jesus. And I think the best, the best explanation is to look at this in context, but kind of from an allegorical perspective. Think of it for a moment. Jesus is away in the glory of the Father. He's away in the glory of heaven. His disciples remain on earth to deal with the maddening problems of humanity, illustrated by this desperate father and this possessed boy. Religion had failed to address this boy's condition, the human condition, religion being illustrated by the scribes. Those who had been left behind to represent Christ to the world, the disciples, they found themselves helpless in the presence of such a real pressing need. And with that in mind, Jesus looks at all of them. He says, oh, faithless generation. Jesus' indictment, it's aimed at several groups. It's aimed at a multitude of fickled ears seeking nothing but entertainment. It's aimed at a father in desperation who has no direction or spiritual inclination. Oh, faithless generation, it was, a, it was aimed at this boy who was possessed, bound in bondage. It was aimed at a religion of scribes, only able to diagnose a problem but, but provide no remedy. And it was aimed at a group of disciples who were seeking to solve this problem, a human need, a human condition problem, using their own ingenuity and their own strength. Oh, faithless generation. Now, what's Jesus' remedy for the boy's problem? He says it. He says, bring him to me. That's his remedy. The solution to this boy's problem, this father's predicament, this boy's torment, bring him to me. Do you know that the ultimate remedy for the problems facing mankind, from the problems facing you and your friends, your family, your spouse, your coworkers, the ultimate solution to the problems of man. It's not religion. It's Jesus. J. Vernon McGee, he observes on this passage, he says, right now the organized church is in desperation in reaching out, protesting and marching and getting involved in all kinds of things. But social matters are not our business. We ought to be able to help a poor demon-possessed boy today by presenting a savior to him who will make him rational and bring him into a right relationship with God. Unfortunately, the same thing today has been said of the church. They could not. The disciples could not, and we cannot. We are attempting to do everything to address the human condition except bring lost men to Jesus. Well, we're told that they brought the boy to Jesus, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he says, from childhood. And often, the demon has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, 
have compassion on us and help. And Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now look at the progression of this father's experience with Jesus. First, it's obvious that the man had a need. What was his need? His boy, his son, was suffering, was being tormented. That the torment led to suicidal attempts, being thrown into the fire, trying to be drowned in the water, that there was a force meant on the destruction of his own flesh and blood. And as a father of a young child, I can't imagine the pain and the hurt and the heartache and the helplessness that this man felt he had a need. And what else can we note? That he was desperate. That he had brought his boy to the scribes, to religion. That yes, could diagnose the condition. Sir, I don't know if you know this, but your son has a problem. Duh, thanks for the the idea, like great. We think he's possessed. I think I could have figured that out myself. Religion only tells you you're screwed up. That you're messed up that you're a sinner, that you're lost, that you're perverted. Religion only diagnoses your problem. And it left this man more desperate. The world provided no remedy. Religion didn't work. And so we're told that he came to Jesus. He reached the conclusion, (laughs) the world isn't helping, religion isn't helping. What else? I'm, you know what? I'm going to take my son to Jesus. And you got to give the man credit for this. He brings his son to Jesus. He had nothing to lose at this point. And in a real need coupled with desperation brought him to Jesus. But note an honest examination of this man. He doubted whether Jesus was able He says, if you can do anything, literally, he's saying, if you have the power to do anything for my son, please have compassion. A need, and he was desperate, and he came to Jesus, even in the midst of doubt. I don't know if you can or if you can't, but I'm here, and I'm hoping It was worth rolling the dice. You see, he came to Jesus, and in all honesty, he was not sure Jesus could could solve the problem. He wasn't sure that Jesus was able. But then what does Jesus do? Does Jesus rebuke the man? Does he send the man away? Does he throw up his hands and depart? No, Jesus instead invites the man to do something. Jesus invites him to believe. To believe in what? See, I don't think Jesus was inviting the man to believe that Jesus was able. I think Jesus was inviting the man to believe and who he was, to believe in him. This phrase, if you can believe, it's the Greek verb pisteo which means literally to think to be true or to trust. 
He wasn't sure that Jesus could remedy the situation, that Jesus had the power. And so Jesus asks him to have faith in himself. You can translate this word belief into saving faith. Jesus was asking him to believe, not in his power, but to first believe in his person. And what takes place? Immediately the man, he declares a belief in Jesus. He said, Lord I believe. Now this word Lord, it's the Greek noun Christos. We get the word Christ, Messiah, it is a title for God. It was also a title that was used for Caesar. The the phrase literally means he to whom a person belongs. He comes to Jesus, he has a need, and he's desperate, but he's doubting whether Jesus has the ability or not. And Jesus says, let's not deal with that. Let's first deal with you and me. If you believe, if you trust me, and he says, I believe, Lord, I believe. I trust who you are. I I believe who you are. Though the man was unsure of Jesus' power, it's clear he had no doubts concerning Jesus' lordship. I don't know what you can do, but I do believe in who you are. You know, friend, you can doubt Jesus' ability. You might have a need that's pressing. You might have a hurt that the world can diagnose but provide no remedy for. You might have experienced pain or gone through situations. That you come to Jesus and you, in all honesty, you doubt whether Jesus can really do anything. Dak, you don't know how screwed up I am. You don't know what I've done. I, I do believe that Jesus is God. I do believe he's who he said he was. I just am not sure if he's able. Do you know in the presence of that situation, Jesus doesn't rebuke? And Jesus doesn't cast away or turn a shoulder, but he looks and he invites you to trust. It's okay, you can doubt, but will you trust me? Will you trust me? And then the man asks, He asked Jesus, he says, Lord, I believe. But then he says, help my unbelief. This word unbelief in the Greek, it's literally a weakness of faith. But note, and this is important, his unbelief, this weakness of faith was based in what Jesus could do, his ability. It was not based in who Jesus was. He's already affirmed. I believe you're Lord. I believe you're the Christ. I believe in who you are. I'm just not sure if you can work in this situation. I want to believe, but I'm not sure. Help me. The man invites Jesus to do something to help him and his faith. Now, please contrast this with another instance that we're told of unbelief. Because when Jesus is in Nazareth, They reject him, don't they? He opens the prophet Isaiah. He reads a glorious passage about his mission, about who he was. He says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. 
I am the Christ. And what happened? They don't believe him. They rejected what, they rejected who Jesus was. You're the carpenter's son. You're not the son of God. You're not the Christ. They didn't believe in who he was. They would not declare him to be Lord. And as a result, we're told that Jesus, he left. He did no work there. No ministry, nothing, zip, zilch, nada. And we're told that he marveled why? Because of their unbelief. So what's the difference between the the unbelief of the, the residents of Nazareth and the unbelief of this father? It's in what they were lacking belief in. In Nazareth, they didn't believe who Jesus was. They didn't believe he was Lord, and thus Jesus could do nothing. With this man, he said, Lord, I believe. He had no doubt who Jesus was. He just wasn't sure if Jesus was able. And once again, how does Jesus handle this person? What is Jesus' his reaction? Well, we're told that Jesus saw the people. They, They came running. We're told that he rebukes this unclean spirit. He says, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. And the spirit cried out and convulsed him greatly and came out of the man, the boy. And he became as one that was dead. So that many even said, he's dead. Way to go, Jesus. You cast out the demon, but you killed him. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and the boy arose. Jesus' reaction. Jesus invites the man to believe. And the man has no problems immediately. Lord, I believe. But then the man asks Jesus, help my unbelief. Show me that you're able. And what does Jesus do? Jesus shows him he's able. You know, sometimes we don't bring certain things to Jesus because we don't, we don't know if Jesus can do anything. We've tried everything else, every other remedy, and we're not sure it could work. We know who Jesus is. We believe he's Lord. We come to church. We sing the songs. We read scripture. And Jesus invites us, will you trust me? Will you give me a chance? And the boy's like, then help. And in the presence of this, what does Jesus do? He doesn't judge. He doesn't condemn. He liberates this man's boy. He frees him. So much so that the demon could never return to enter. Jesus can't work in the life of a person who doesn't believe who he is. He can't. He won't. He'll respect and honor your decisions. But to the person who who will affirm, Jesus, your Lord, I, I just don't know if this baggage, I don't know if you're willing to carry it or if you're able to carry it. Jesus, try me. Try me. A real need, a desperation, he comes to Jesus. And Jesus works in an incredible way. And friend, I don't know what you're going through or what you've been through or what you're holding back. But Jesus invites you. And you can challenge Jesus. I believe your Lord, now show me. Nothing else will work. 
I'll give you a try. This man brought his boy to Jesus. And Jesus worked an incredible miracle. But we're told, verse 28, that Jesus, he comes into the house. His disciples come to Jesus privately and they ask, why could we not cast it out? Speaking of this demon. So Jesus said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. The disciples privately Jesus, what's the deal? Why weren't we able? In Mark chapter 6, we're told that they had cast out demons before. All kinds of unclean spirits. They had done it before, and so now they're in a situation that they weren't able to do it, and so they're, they're curious. Jesus, what's the deal, man? Now, Jesus' answer is interesting. In Mark, we're told this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. In Matthew chapter 17, we're given a little bit more of Jesus' response, and I'll read it for you. Jesus says, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you had faith as a mustard seed, you should say to this mountain, move here to there, and it'll move, for nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now note Jesus' main reason for why they were not able to address this need. He says, it's your unbelief. It's your unbelief. In Mark 6, yes, they were able to cast out demons, but you should note something interesting. That before they were sent out, before they were sent out to minister in the name of Jesus, we're told that Jesus gave them power over unclean spirits. And the result, they were successful. In Mark 9, our passage, the disciples attempt to cast out a demon using their own power. And the result, well, they failed. Total failure. Now note that the problem wasn't that they didn't have faith in their ability. This is not Jesus' criticism to them. If you had just believed in yourself, if you had just, I mean, if you had just had more self-confidence, guys, really. This would have all worked out. You wouldn't have looked like idiots and fools in front of everybody else. The power of you. No, you see, Jesus wasn't rebuking them for their lack of faith in their ability. Jesus was saying that the problem was that they didn't seek the Lord for ability, thus revealing their lack of faith or unbelief. See, the problem is that they didn't come and they didn't pray. They didn't seek the Lord. They didn't come asking for power. They tried to deal with a human need and their own ability, and they failed at it. And it's sad that we see a church today trying to address the problems that face us in our own ability. And you know, the church today is failing. This kind can only come out by prayer. You should have prayed. Now, there's a secondary reason that Jesus uses an interesting word. He says, this kind. It's literally the word genos or family or offspring. This kind of demon. Jesus indicates that there was, that there was something different about this demon than maybe the unclean spirits that they had dealt with previously. Lots we could get into that. We're going to leave that to one of our B-sides this week. Jesus made it clear 
that the problem was their unbelief and the problem is that they didn't pray before dealing with the need. Now, please note, and once again, we're going to leave this also to one of the B-sides, that we get an interesting phrase, and fasting, that this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. Uh, prayer makes a lot of sense to me. Jesus is like, you didn't pray. Fasting, that's a, that's a, a skull scratcher. Like, what does Jesus mean by fasting, especially in context to an earlier study we taught dealing with fasting as a work and how the church has confused the entire concept of fasting? To make a long story short, I am not of the opinion that Jesus said and fasting, that this is not actually, in regards to the context and textual criticism, legit. In your King James or New King James, you will find a footnote that will mention that earlier transcripts of this passage exclude and fasting. You will also find if you're using the ESV, uh, the American Standard, the NIV, the ESV, like if you're using a more modern translation, you will find that it's actually not listed at all. There's a, a very feasible explanation for this, um, but we're going to leave it to a B-side. Um, I love this about Scripture. I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture completely 100%. And I love the fact that the Bible, that Christians, when we address issues like this, we don't lock the, we don't lock the evidence in a Vatican vault. We don't sweep it under the rug. That we really, in all honesty, want to make sure that what we have is legit. And we are honest when we come to these kind of moments. The King James, the New King James, were originally translated in the 1600s. They did their best with the evidence that they had. Earlier manuscripts have come up since then. We'll leave it to a B-side. Now, we're going to close with this. Why would Jesus tell them they should have prayed? It's your unbelief. You should have prayed. Why? Well, first, they should have asked if it was God's will for them to exercise the demon. Now, you might have looked at the need initially and said, of course it's God's will. But Jesus has given them a model of prayer, right? That we're to come and we're to ask that God's will be done on earth, not my will done in heaven. They were representing Jesus. They were representing God. And their, their first problem, that they should have come to God and said, we're your hands and feet. This is a need, it looks very obvious, you would want us to deal with. Do you really want us to deal with it? They should have asked what God's will was. Secondly, if God said, cast out the demon, they then should have asked, okay, then give us the power to cast out the demon. You know, it's an interesting thought to consider, and this might be controversial in some ways, but just maybe the reason that these guys were unsuccessful in casting out the demon is that Jesus didn't want them to cast out the demon? And why? Imagine this story if they had been successful. You would have had a father that would have left and have never encountered Jesus. I mean, think about it from that context. If they had been successful, the, the, the boy, the demon might have left, but would, could it have been possible the demon could have returned? I mean, when Jesus cast out the demon, he makes it clear that the demon was not to come back. You see, I'm of the persuasion that Jesus didn't want them to cast out the demon. Why? Because there was a greater work that Jesus wanted to first do in the life of this father before he dealt with the need of the son. The problem, the problem with the disciple 
is that they were looking at this situation using human eyes. They were not looking at this situation with spiritual eyes. It's a reoccurring theme, isn't it? This is their problem. If they had stopped to pray, to seek the Lord's will, God maybe would have given them a different perspective on how to really address the need, but they didn't. Well, we'll leave it there. We'll come back to this spot next Sunday. So Father, we thank you for your word.